Welcome to the podcast channel of the East Bay Unity Intergroup of Overeaters Anonymous. The opinions expressed here are those of individual members and do not represent OA as a whole. For more information about our intergroup, please visit our website at eastbayoa.org. Hi, I am Marcia and I am a super duper compulsive overeater and I can't see very well today, so I can't see everybody who's here, but I know some of you guys are really significant part of my recovery, and I just want to say hi and thank you. You know, I mean, whenever you share, it's like your mind goes, Ooh, what are you going to say? <sighs> I thought I would title it, and the first thought that came to mind is what not to do, and then the second one is... Uh, freedom from bondage of self, Um, and they correlate um, what it was, what it's like now. And I also wanted to give just a few caveats. Um, The first is I use the word God, and I've had it, uh, I am having, I should say, a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. And my experience is uh, an experience of an immense and personal God. And um, when I use the word, it does not mean anything like you'd find in a church or any place like that. It's my own experience and it doesn't have a gender. Um, You know, I could use another word that I just haven't gotten used to. They as a singular pronoun quite yet. Another caveat is I am also in AA and a large part of my recovery has been in AA. Um, It was through AA that I learned to love the big book. Um, And I, I mean, I love it. It's, it's the, I would say for me that it has been the source of my ability to experience joy and my ability, I mean, I have so many gifts and uh, learning to accept what I have, live in the present and appreciate, you know, what I have. That's all a gift of this program. And it was uh, when I was five months sober that uh, a sponsor finally took me through the steps as outlined in the big book. So I quote it. I also like OA literature, but uh, and I'm not a thumper. I'm not a thumper but I hope people aren't offended if I use it as a, my source. And the third thing is sometimes I swear, I don't know if it's a problem for people, but finally I learned in my life that I love to swear. So it's part of my life. And then I have a question, can I mention uh, foods or is this a, is it okay for me? Yeah, it's fine. I, okay, thank you. All right, having said all that, uh, let's see. My first memory of, well, sugar addiction, I was four years old and uh, I moved a chair over to the count. My mother, we lived on a corner and there was a mailbox on the corner and my mother had gone out the front door. She left the front door open. She walked down the steps. She went to the corner to mail, you know, a letter, came back. And in that time I had pushed a stool over to the counter, climbed up and was eating raw sugar out of the sugar bowl. That's my first memory. I recently have done another fourth step and I have become, I mean, aware on a 
in my innermost self that my disease is binge eating, but it's more than that. It's restriction. And binge eating is just a reaction to my restriction, my restrictive disease. And uh, my earliest memories of relationship with food was my parents saying to me, do you have to eat the whole thing? My sister was skinny. She ate like a bird. They were always telling her to eat more. And for me, it was, do you have to eat the whole thing? And my mother took me to a dietitian when I was 11 years old to put me on a diet. The dietitian told me that when I was hungry, it was good. So every time I felt hungry, I should, you know, be happy because that meant I was losing weight. Um, so as a child, uh, I, I had to sneak eating, sneak eat. And uh, so I would get up in the middle of the night um, and eat bowls of cereal while my parents were asleep. I made concoctions. I mean, as, I mean, I was probably six or seven years old when I started making concoctions with flour and sugar and whatever. My mother taught me how to bake at a young age, probably older than six now I think about it. Anyway, I was sharing yesterday about how uh, I became a Girl Scout simply so that I could sell the cookies and sell them. No, no, that didn't happen. They were in a box in my room. For some reason, I ate, ate them all. Not all of them, but I would steal from my parents' wallets to pay. And I think my parents knew. So um, I was, I, you know, I look back at pictures. I wasn't that much overweight. I really wasn't, especially by today's standards. You know, so many children are seriously obese nowadays. Um, but I was teased. I was tall. I was at least a head taller than most of my um, peers. I don't know why probably because I'm Swedish and come from peasant stock, but, um, and, uh, and I was overweight and they called me baby Huey. And some of you are old enough to know who baby Huey was, was a cartoon character that was like the size of a house. Uh, my sisters called me fat. So a lot of people called me fat. So, and, um, a lot of shaming. So I believe that I was a monster and it's taken me a long time to accept just who I am. Um, okay, so uh, my overeating didn't change. It got worse, you know, I would babysit. I'd eat everything in the cupboards. I, yeah, I mean, most of you know, you know, I'd eat loaves of bread. <laughs> I mean, I ate a lot. Uh, stole money from my parents, would go to the local store and buy candy. Um, so it was like that. When I became a teenager, I became very aware of my weight, my size, I should say. And that was when I started consciously dieting. And what I did was I fasted. And I, I mean, my, one of my clearest memory was, is uh, a month or so where I would eat one hot dog, half a sandwich or a bowl of soup or a hard boiled egg a day. And that sort of set the stage for dieting. I would get so excited when I was losing weight. It never lasted. I always, there was always something that tripped the switch and I was off and running and I was binging again. But that was when I started, you know, the cycle for me of dieting and binging. And my weight went up and my weight went down. And I was, I knew I was powerless. I knew that I was addicted to sugar. I used to try to give it up for Lent. I wasn't, we didn't come from a religious family, but I thought maybe it would help. 
I could never make it past, I don't know, a couple of days. So um, I went to college and uh, I, I mean, I'm old, I'm really old. So this is, a long, I'm just fast forwarding. So um, I went to college, uh, you know, I tried the Atkins diet. I, you know, tried to fast. I went on um, liquid diets. I, you know, read books. I would always be inspired by some book that I read, some, the latest diet book. It used to come out like every month and not quite as much anymore. By the way, if you hear a noise in the background, I'm outside and that's a prairie dog. Um, okay, so it got worse. After I graduated, I moved to New York City and uh, yeah, well, I guess I don't need to go into details, but I came back to California, moved to Berkeley and it was the seventies and I joined a commune. And I drank, I smoked marijuana and I binged. And a lot of times it was a combination of the three uh, of course, food was always the primary. It was always the, it was my source, I would say. And one night, everybody left. I don't know where they went. And I had the house to myself. And we had these big jars of granola that um, another, her name was Marsha, actually, and another woman in the house. And she would make this, oh, it was so, so good. I must have eaten, I don't know how many bowls, but I ate a lot of granola. I was drunk and stoned and I was lying on the living room floor when they got home. And one of the women that I lived with took me by the hand and said, tomorrow you're going to an OA meeting with me. And I didn't want to go. I didn't know what it was. And that was January, 1979. And OA has changed tremendously since then. When I first got in, everybody did the same eat uh, food plan. We weighed measured. Um, the focus was primarily on food. Not a lot of people at that time had much recovery, you know, spiritual and emotional recovery. It was pretty much food. And that was fine with me because I was diet oriented. I actually liked the food plan. It taught me what a normal size was. It gave me limits and restrictions. Uh, you know, I got really off on restrictions, but it also let me eat. So I wasn't starving all the time, starving, binging. Um, basically stayed in OA for until 2003 when I moved from Berkeley to New Mexico, and that's a different story, but, um, and here's the don't do what I did, <laughs> period. Um, in that, in that period of time, well, not just that period of time, my top weight was 325 pounds. And I got down to skin and bones when people were worried. So I went up and down. Um, I was able to stay abstinent sometimes for a whole year, couple, one time for five years. And uh, in the course of my abstinence, I've also been able to stay abstinent for three years. So that's about it. That's why I'm saying don't do what I did because in that period of time from 1979 to 2003, I was, that's about how long I was able to stay absent. I struggled. I struggled. I never stopped going. I told myself, no matter what happens, always go to another meeting. And um, I had some wonderful sponsors, so many wonderful sponsors. And one of the things that I learned 
at that time that has stayed with me is I had a sponsor who Lord knows why she kept working with me, but one day she said to me, Marcia, you can't control the food. There's, you don't have any power over the food. What you have power over is the tools. You can make phone calls. You can go to meetings. You can write. Um, and so, you know, that was the foundation of my OA program for many years. And um, like I said, at one time I was absent for five years, five blissful years. I didn't, um, I didn't even want to eat. During that time, I, I mean, I know I'm sugar addict. There's no doubt. So my abstinence has always included no sugar. Um, I have done every food plan and every faction of OA except for Food Addicts Anonymous. Other than that, I've done them all. And I can tell you they all work, but they worked for me until they didn't work for me anymore. And I had to learn to live with food. And that was the, that's the heart of my recovery. How do I live with food? I did turn on my, maybe I didn't. You better, you better tie me. <laughs> I thought, I guess I didn't turn on. Um, okay, so um, I don't want to jump around too much, but um, you know, my 40s were my favorite decade. I had more fun in my 40s. Part of it was because when you start getting older, as some of you know, you know, you just are who you are. And, uh, you know, one of my slogans is fuck them. And it works for me. Uh, I learned they have a problem with my weight. That's their problem. It's not mine. Um, I, and then another one is they're not going to run screaming. I mean, I used to think, you know, if my socks didn't match, people were going to run screaming. And so fuck them. And they're not going to run screaming or two of my program slogans. <laughs> I think they should put those on the wall. But anyway, um, so I did get down to a, a reasonable weight. I learned how to surf. I worked out. I was a mountain biker. I was very strong. I was stronger than a lot of the 30-year-old guys that I would go with. And I didn't have one girlfriend who was a tomboy. Uh, the only people that I could, did things with were guys. And as a compulsive overeater who's been fat the majority of my life up to that point, um, hanging out with guys was a new experience for me. It was a thrill. I fell in love. I fell in love with a guy who was 17 years younger than me. He had a motorcycle and he was a bad boy. And we drank and we smoked marijuana. And uh, he was a normal person. And we'd go, he would get hungry. We'd go to a fast food place. I didn't buy food there, but he would. He'd take a few bites and put it on the dashboard. And I would sit there looking at it going, I cannot understand. I can't understand this. Um, I have a whole different experience now. How much time do I have left? Oh, God. Oh, shit. I am so sorry. Yeah, I didn't set it. All right. Well, I'll try to, I'll just try to speed up here a little bit. That was the best time in my life. Um, I had a horrible job. I worked for Child Protective Services. I was super depressed. I was crying all the time. Um, I, and I went on disability for depression twice. And finally, I had a doctor who said he would not sign my um for me to return to work he wouldn't do it he said i had to find another job got another job it was awful 
My parents and my sister and my niece lived in Taos, New Mexico, which is where I live now. And I decided one time, my, my best friend, my dog, and my dog died. My best friend moved. I hated my job. And uh, my house where I was renting was going, um, you're saying something to me, but I can't hear you. Um, oh, no. Um, and uh, what was the other thing? Oh, the house I was renting. Um, the house that I was renting was being put on the market. So I just said, fuck it, I'm leaving. And I came to New Mexico and it, and, and it's been jumping around a little bit and I don't have to go into details, but uh, we do not have a way here. We've tried, well, there was for a while, a, a really solid group of us, but they all moved. And now there's only one meeting if it still exists and it's basically a diet club. And I tried really hard to go and share the message and then there's another meeting that a group of us started, but it was, you know, these big book thumpers and, uh, oh, you know, I just, <laughs> it didn't work for me. So Zoom, I mean, Zoom, <laughs> if it wasn't for Zoom, I don't know where I'd be. A year ago, I looked, uh, I have been writing down my weight this last year. Um, I, a year ago, I weighed 269 pounds. And when I first got abstinent at the beginning of the COVID uh, thing, I weighed, uh, 279 pounds. Um, I've lost, I don't know, I don't actually keep track, but it's somewhere in the realm of more than 70 pounds. Um, but that's not the point. That isn't the point because it can't be the point. If I focus on, if I focus on food and if I focus on my weight, I will binge. Um, I know this, I am one fucking sick puppy. Um, my definition of abstinence right now is willingness, absolute surrender, um, no sugar, no binging. Um, but the most important thing is know what my first bite is, know what it is, and to be honest about it and to, you know, work my program around the first bite. Because if I take the first bite, I'm off and running. If I don't, I'm fine. So, um, I was, like I said, 279 pounds. I was eating at least a half a gallon of ice cream, maybe two, eating uh, entire pies. Um, unfortunately, I, had a, I have a neighbor who has a refrigerator stocked full of sweets and told me I could have whatever I wanted, and so I did. I was watching Grey's Anatomy one night, and uh, there was a guy on it who was about 70, 700 pounds. Of the, I mean, it was a horrible story. And uh, I watched it and I looked at that guy and I said, man, you know what? You really need professional help. And a light went on. I thought that because I was an OA and I had, you know, 30 something years in the program that I knew what I needed. Turns out everything I've eaten my whole life has been <laughs> exactly wrong. All the diets I went on was no fat, count your calories, you know, no carbs, whatever. It was always limiting, restricting. And I was always hungry and I always felt deprived. And I found this wonderful nutritionist. I highly recommend, I'll give you her name, um, uh, but, or, or find a nutritionist that really understands the eating disorder, but also wants you to enjoy food. First thing we talked about was no restricting. Um, I had to eat um, good fats. I started freaking out and I still freak out. I still freak out. I have to tell my sponsor almost on a daily basis that I think I'm going to gain weight from what I'm eating. I am never hungry. I am always satisfied, always satisfied, 
always. <laughs> and and uh, I enjoy my food. I do not feel deprived. It's been amazing. Okay, so that's the food, the steps. Uh, I, wish I, had, I wish I had started talking about the steps earlier, but um, I have already talked about the first step, powerlessness. Um, and then I have come to have, okay, so in the big book, it, it says the point, the point of the steps is to have an effective spiritual experience that will solve our problem. And so when I came in the program, I had been in, you know, all kinds of spiritual trips. I, I, you know, Eastern, Christian, the whole thing. And, um, I thought I knew everything and I thought I knew what a spiritual awakening was. I didn't. I thought I had to have a spiritual awakening at the third step. That's not what it says. I have been surprised by the experience that I've had, but I've worked the steps rigorously and then um, out of the big book and with a sponsor. My, one of my first experiences, I was doing my fourth step. I was working on my dad. My dad was abusive and um, I, I had this experience. I was writing at night and it was a, you know, a winter night. It was warm and my house cold outside. It was dark outside. And um, I was working on my fourth step. And the way my sponsor taught me was to do the third step prayer when you start and when you end. And that's my time with God. And I learned that the fourth step is not about digging up all these problems and things about yourself that you hate. It's just about what I say, taking the lid off and looking at the ingredients in the pot. So I had this experience where it was one of those things where I heard a voice. Now it wasn't a booming voice. It wasn't, it was just in my, inside me, but it didn't sound like me. And I felt this warmth and, uh, and I felt love and I had never experience that in relation to God. For me, God was always judgmental and painful and awful. And I had this experience that said, how could you not have behaved the way you do, did? How could you not have overeaten given the situation that I was in? And it was the first time that I had a shift in a relationship with a higher power. That doesn't mean that it was, you know, skipping down the road. You know, I do like that though, walking hand in hand on the broad highway. And that was my experience with the fifth step. Um, I didn't finish the steps with that sponsor, but I finished them later with another sponsor. And to tell the truth, this was in AA, um, <clears throat> but it has been the foundation of my OA program at this point. And I'm working them again this time with AA literature and it's been fantastic. Um, so I've been surprised by the, the spiritual awakening. And um, I have these experiences. It's not just that I'm abstinent. It's not just that I'm sober. I am a whole different person. I am a completely different person. And my friends will tell you, I'm not depressed. And that's not just because of OA, it's our AA. It's, I also work with a therapist and I take medication, but I'm no longer depressed. I actually experience joy on a regular basis. I am grateful. I used to complain. I used to have self-pity and justified, justified anger. Yeah, sure. There's lots of things to be angry about. Um, it does say that the world is 
something and people actually do wrong us. That happens. It's how I react to it is what I'm learning. So now I have a sponsor that teaches me to basically read the 11th step every day, which I don't every day, but I try. And it says to bring God into all of our activities. It says, when we don't know what to do, we pause. I'm gonna um, paraphrase here. We trust our intuition. I've never trusted my intuition. I've never thought it was okay to trust my intuition. So when we're agitated, I love that because I get agitated like how many times a day, 15 times a day I'm agitated. Somebody says, oh, we are going to get agitated. Pause. I take a breath, hopefully three or four. Remind myself that I'm no longer running the show. It's not about me trying to control outcomes anymore. It's about me trying to align, align myself with my higher power. I say, let God take the lead. That helps me. So pause. Thy will be done, not mine. So uh, yeah, I can't describe my spiritual awakening, but all I can say is if you haven't worked all the 12 steps out of the big book, I suggest, but that's my um you will be surprised i can guarantee it you know it says it says in how it works rarely has a person failed who has thoroughly followed our path um evidently on dr bob's deathbed he said i wish that we said that um never has a person failed who has thoroughly followed our path because that was his experience his his observation and I think with that, I'll close. And I sure hope I didn't go over time. Okay.